12. Let's turn there this morning. Now, for those who may not know, we have been in the book of Genesis now since January of 2010. We've spent two years studying intensively chapters 1 through 11 because of the nature of those chapters. The fact that uh, chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis are the most attacked, the most criticized of of all of the chapters of the Bible. We deal with the issues of creation. We have dealt with the issues of creation, dealt with the, uh, the young earth uh, controversy or the issue, realizing that uh, we must trust the Bible from Genesis 1, 1 to the very end of the book of Revelation as God's word. We have stood upon the very fact that God created all things good, but that By chapter 3, we have to deal with the issue of sin and why man is in the condition that he is in today. Then, of course, there is the movement of man into all of the nations, which brought us to chapter 11, and many other issues between then and there. Of course, the flood, and after the flood, and all. So, it took us a good while to get through. Today we're starting a new phase in the book of Genesis, which is a new section. And uh, we're dealing primarily, and we're, I mentioned to you that we were going to move a little faster. Uh, that starts next week. Today we're going to focus our attention upon one person. And it's important that we take the time to study about the life of Abraham because... Uh, He, in fact, is much more significant than I think most people understand. Next to Jesus Christ, he's probably the most significant person in the scriptures as far as our salvation is concerned. We'll talk about this as we go on. But uh, again, we will move on next week fast. Today, we focus on Abraham. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Shall we pray? Father, once again, we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit as we come to your word this morning. Father, may you speak to our hearts. May you encourage us, Lord. May you teach us and show us how significant Abraham is, not only to the whole of Scripture, but most importantly to us individually today. How he becomes for us that example of a blessed relationship with you which we all need to understand and have. And so this we ask, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we now get back to our continuing study of the book of Genesis, we want to focus our attention, as I said, upon the person of Abraham, who, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is probably the most important person in the Scriptures. One major indication of this is the amount of space that is given to him, especially here in the book of Genesis. While only the first 11 chapters of Genesis are devoted to the entire 2,000 or more years of the world's history preceding him, a period that encompasses at least 19 earlier generations, 14 chapters are used to set forth the life of this one man, Abraham. Excuse me. Now, the significant middle portion of Genesis, which is chapters 12 through 36, is the narrative of the history of Abraham and his immediate descendants. We find in our text a man named Abram, whose name means exalted father, who will later be called Abraham, the father of a multitude. 
Now, it's important to note, once again, as, as we have a, a few weeks ago when we were closing out the book of, uh, of well, I should say the chapter, uh, the previous chapter, chapter 11, where Abraham is first mentioned. I mentioned that uh, he is, of course, revered not only by the Jews, but also by the Muslims, as well as Christians. So that's a very significant thing about Abraham. But his name is significant too, and so today we're going to stick to calling him Abram for the time being. <clears throat> now, Abram was a man of faith. And it is for this reason that he is a giant of Scripture. Consider that Moses was the great lawgiver, having received the Ten Commandments and other laws from God on Sinai and delivered them to the people. Under the Lord's direction, he was instrumental in leading the children of Israel out of its Egyptian bondage. Joshua was a great military leader. He guided the nation of Israel across the Jordan River to the conquest of the Promised Land. David was Israel's most brilliant king. He brought Israel to a position of prominence and power in the Near East, and, and he expressed their deepest spiritual emotions in some of the best-loved Psalms. Daniel was an outstanding statesman. Elijah was among the great prophets. But each of these men, like many other prophets and leaders, each was a giant. But each would have confessed in an instant that Abram was his father in faith. In these early chapters in the life of the father of faith, we are told of God's promise to Abram that he would be the father of many nations. This promise was fulfilled both physically and spiritually. Now, on the physical side, Abram became the father of the Jewish people through his son Isaac. It was of this line that Messiah was born. Abram also became the father of many of the Arab tribes through his son Ishmael. But on the spiritual side... He has become the father of a great army of believers whose number are now enlarged by Christians of many tongues and many nations. No one can truly understand the Hebrew Scriptures. No one can understand the Old Testament, in other words, without understanding Abram. For to a certain extent, the history of redemption begins with God's call on his life. Consider, if you will, that the record of Abram's life contains the first mention of God's righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And we know that righteousness can only come from God. So it was something that God accounted to Abram as his. He accounted unto Abram's account for righteousness. Now, Matthew includes, uh, includes Jesus' genealogy in his gospel so as to trace the beginnings of salvation to Abram. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. But then in Luke's gospel, we find Zechariah's declaration that Jesus' birth occurred in fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. Now, Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. And he, there speaking in the temple, would say this in verses 68 through 73, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of the holy prophets, which has been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath, notice, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. There are some great portions of the New Testament which explain the significance of Abram. For instance, to support the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, 
Paul devotes the entire fourth chapter of the book of Romans to God's dealing with Abram. Galatians chapters 3 and 4 refer to Abram's life to prove that salvation is given apart from good works. And then one of the longest paragraphs in Hebrews chapter 11 is devoted to the growth of faith in the life of Abram. Now I'm only going to give you two sections of that, the first and the last, and the middle section of this long paragraph I'll give, give to you at the end of the study. But let's look at verses 8 through 10 of Hebrews 11. Here it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Grammatically speaking, if you take the first phrase, by faith Abraham, and then everything in between, you know, you pass that and you go to the word obeyed, this is what it says, by faith Abraham obeyed. (laughs) And he went out not knowing whither he went. He didn't know where he was going, but he went. Because he went by faith and he trusted the Lord. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Which tells us that while he went out, he wasn't really looking for a settlement here. He knew that there was something greater and beyond this life. And that's what he was looking for. When you jump down to verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried or tested, he offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall all thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure or in a type. Not to mention that James now refers to that account to prove that Abraham was also justified by his works. When James says in James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? And we don't have the time to go through Romans 4 and James 2 because when you put them together, even though it seems like they're speaking of something different, they're not. They're just seeing from things from different perspectives. The perspective of our salvation is that we are justified by faith. The perspective of, from James was that now that we are believers, because of that faith, now our faith gives way to the works that we have as believers. But we'll talk about that in another time. But what brings us closer now, and this is the most important thing here, what brings us closer in relation to Abram is that he is called the friend of God three times in Scripture. Abraham is called the friend of God three times in Scripture. That's significant. Go through Genesis to Revelation. Try to find someone else called the friend of God three times. Try to even find one that's called the friend of God once, other than Abraham. Now I do have to mention that Jesus at one point in time did speak to his disciples. And he said, I no longer call you my servants. I call you my friends. And this is significant in just a moment. You'll see why. But let's consider the fact that he was called the friend of God three times. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. It's a tremendous cry from the heart of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. When Judah was surrounded by the enemies of Judah, the three great enemies... And they went to prayer. And this is so significant in that it is given within this prayer for deliverance that we find him saying in in his prayer, Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? It is a strong reminder to God of His promise to deliver His people. To some extent we see that in Isaiah 41 verse 8 where it says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And then in James 2.23, 
He writes, And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, have you ever wondered why Abram is called God's friend? And it has to be a whole totally different reason why God would call him a friend as to the reason why we call other people our friends. You have to remember that, of course, when we call a person our friend, usually it's conditional. He's my friend because we like the same football team or we live on the same block or we went to school together or whatever it is. That's a conditional thing. But it's totally different with God. Why is Abraham called God's friend? Is it not because he believed God and he lived a life characterized by faith? Think about that. What do we know about Abraham but that he believed God, he trusted God. And then, not only did he trust God, but he lived a life that was characterized by that very same faith. This truly is what stands out in the life of Abram. You think of others in the scripture, for example, the person of Job. When we think of Job, the person of Job speaks to us of hope. When you search the scriptures and the prophets, you come to the prophet Hosea. And when you read the, the, the prophecy of Hosea, you realize that he speaks to us of divine love. But when you consider Abraham or Abram, you see him as the great example of faith. Now that's important because you see, that's the Old Testament indication of the three very virtues that God has given to all generations, which would be the virtues that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says there are these three things, three virtues, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And yes, while the greatest of these is love, it has to begin with faith. It has to begin with our trust in God. It has to begin as it began with Abram. And this is certainly necessary for any who would be God's friend. We need to believe God. We need to trust God. And then we need to live a life that is characterized by that faith in God. Now take, for instance, what we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, because here it says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. Notice simply, he must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So you have to consider then. You believe God, you trust God, Therefore, live a life that characterizes that faith in God. His belief, Abraham's belief, was signified by his obedience. Are you obeying God? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Now, this nickname friend does to a degree exalt Abram, doesn't it? I mean, wow, he's a friend of God. I mean, that's pretty, pretty important in somebody's life. You know, to be called a friend of God. Nobody else, uh, that, not that many, if, if any, were called the friend of God. I mean, I'm sure if God had other friends, then he, I'm sure he did. I'm sure Moses was his friend. And I'm sure that Joshua was his friend. But how interesting that Abraham is specifically called God's friend. So to some degree, it does exalt Abram, but it also brings the patriarch down to our level as well. It brings Abraham to our level. And we need that. We need to understand that. Because most of us are aware that we will never become lawgivers like Moses, or generals like Joshua, or kings like David. 
We will not be prophets except in the sense that we are all called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. But we can be what Abram was. We can be what Abram was. What was he? Simply, he was a man who heard God. And he believed God. And he believed that God can be trusted to do what he says he will do. We all can do that. Amen? All right. Have you done it? Not too many amens there. What would happen? Have, do you hear God and then do you believe Him? Because that's important here. What did Abram do? He just simply heard God. God called him. And he said, okay. And he believed God. But he believed that God can be trusted to do what God says He will do. And Abram based his entire life on that conviction. You see, we need to base our life on that conviction. We need to base our entire life on that conviction. That we have heard God that we believe God and that we believe that God can be trusted to do what He says He will do. Now, it may come as a shock to learn, especially after an introduction like this, that the first thing said about Abram is that there is nothing in Abram himself that commended him to God. The Lord didn't look down from heaven, in other words. To find a person who had a a little bit of saving faith in him or even a a little bit of righteousness in him. and And then he would say, oh, isn't that great? I mean, isn't that wonderful? I have found somebody with a little bit of faith, with a little bit of righteousness, with a little bit of truth. And and, and that makes it possible then for me to save him because I have found him with a little bit of something already. So I think that's what I'll do. I think I'll save him. First of all, that's not God speaking. (laughs) That's not the truth here. The reality is that when God looks down from heaven, He sees that all are without faith. In fact, it's worse than that. Do you remember this from Genesis chapter 6 verse 5? Where it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we have to consider this this tremendous thought that you take it all the way back to Adam and Eve. And then think about all the good that God had prepared for them in the garden. And all the things that he had made available for them. And everything that was open to them openly except for one tree. And then they were tempted by the serpent to take of that tree, and they did. And the moment they did, they, they began to die. They died instantly, spiritually, but they began to die physically. And everything was turned topsy-turvy. And yet God was merciful, and He, and he offered a sacrifice for them and covered them with the skins of the animals which, with which He offered the sacrifice of blood, obviously. To give us a type of what Jesus Christ came to do. But then there was that need for men to call upon the name of the Lord. And and that would happen for a while. But then as man began to spread out, they began to actually lean upon their own understanding and not upon the understanding of God. And eventually we had to have the flood and the flood came. But there was Noah Noah and and his three sons and their wives and his wife and the eight of them. We're given the opportunity again to start over. And for a while it started okay, but then what happened? Once again, we get to the Tower of Babel and we see how man continues to show. And this is what God is allowing to happen. God continues to show how man's heart is this way without the knowledge of God and without the desire for the knowledge of God. Paul would eventually teach us the same thing in Romans chapter 1. But the point of the matter is this. 
that there is an evaluation that God makes because of man's sin. And Paul talks about that evaluation in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, when he himself quotes from the Old Testament and from the Psalms, Psalm 14, where it tells us, as it is written, Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And we have to come to that understanding that until we came to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how good we thought we were, there wouldn't be enough of the good things that we could do to outmeasure and outwork the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not one thing. And it brings to mind how many people today, not wanting to follow God's Word, not wanting to follow the Word of God in the sense of what it says to us about how to come to Christ and how to come to God the Father through Christ, That people say, we want to do it on our own. We want God on our own terms. We can't have God on our own terms. We have to trust His terms. That's part of faith. We have to trust His law. And I can assure you today, society and culture in the 21st century does not want to deal with God's law. Does not want to deal with the things that are there about how a man wants to live his own life and wants to live his own lifestyles. So please understand that this is the area from which Abram comes from or Abram comes from. Do you know that this basic principle that I'm talking about is illustrated graphically by Abram because we know that he came from a family that had sunk to a level of worshiping idols rather than the true and living God. They were worshiping idols. For all intents and purposes, Abram himself was an idol worshiper since this was his family's inclination. We uh, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we were dealing with, with the end of chapter 11. But Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. How clear it is what, what is said here about the family of Abram. It says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, which was the river Euphrates, dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abram, or Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. That's a pretty clear indication that they were all, even Abraham, idol worshipers. But then as, as, as Joshua begins to conclude his statement to the children of Israel, this is what he says in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. The indication is that even in Joshua's time, there was still idol worship going on. But Joshua attaches that idol worship all the way back to Abram. Because he says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord... Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Even in Joshua's time, they had sunk to the level of idolatry. But the family of Abram was in the very same pool of sin. The same idea seems to present itself in Isaiah 51, where the prophet calls upon the people to look at their unremarkable and their unexceptional past. What brings to mind, what kind of past did we have for God to call us? Well, it says in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence you are hewn. And to the hole of the pit whence you were digged. In other words, look at the rock from which you were chiseled and look at the hole from the, from the pit where you were digged out or dug, dug out from. I mean, those aren't, those aren't very flattering places. But notice what he says. He says, look unto Abraham your father. This is indeed 
in context to what he wants to say. Look at Abraham, your father. Look at, look at where he came from, in other words. But he says, Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. The part of the life that we're going to see of Abraham in, in, in chapter 12 was unremarkable and unexceptional. In fact, it was completely a sinful life. That ties us together with Abraham, doesn't it? You understand that now? You understand that tie-in? Because the force of that statement here in Isaiah 51, the force of that statement is that there is nothing in the ancestry of the Jewish people that could commend them to God. I've said it many times when you read the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God is telling His own people, listen, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than all the other nations, or because you were strong and mighty and powerful. I chose you because I loved you. You know, that takes away, you know, any commendation that we can have on ourselves for God's love. God loves me because I'm really nice and sweet and neat and, you know, Whatever. No. We're sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. We're all hewn from the same rock. We're all dug out of the same pit. And so was Abraham. That's the whole point. The Lord saw that there was nothing in Abraham that could possibly commend him as an object of God's favor. Just as there is nothing in any of us that can commend us to God either. Which brings us to the forefront or which brings to the forefront, I should say, the mercies and grace of the Creator God to choose as He does from such a pool of sinners, such as we are, those that will worship Him and trust Him. But we know from which pool we've come. Do you know from which pool you've come? So a lot of times we didn't know that. Now we should know. Paul says in Romans... All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. For us, the record of Abram's life begins in verse 1 of our text here. Where it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and unto a land that I will show thee. Here was the call of God to Abram. The call to live a life of separation. God called Abram to the most difficult task a person can ever face, that of changing his life, of completely turning around and forsaking everything in this world that he loves and he finds dear. The Lord called Abram to leave and forever separate himself from his country, from his father's house, from the family's possessions and property, as well as the love, care, support, security, and approval of the people that he did know and that he held very dear. Now this is not to say that you're not to love your family, that you're not to care for them. But understand what God is saying. Because we may at this point want to ask the question, why? Why would God call Abram to give up the very things that mean so much to a person? Why? Here's something to consider. The people and things of the world may have apparently meant too much to Abram. But don't just think about him. Think about you. How much do the things of the world mean to you? How much of the people that you love mean to you that you would let them get in the way of your listening to what God is saying to you through Jesus Christ? and through the power of His Holy Spirit. Happens every day. It wasn't just Abram. It was us too. Some of us in this very room at one time heard the call, but we didn't respond. We're going to find out Abram did the same thing. And if God is calling you, are you listening? Are you paying attention to what he's saying? And then are you believing and trusting in him?
Could it be that Abram was putting his world and his family before God? Putting their love, their security, their possessions and approval before God? Could it be that we've done the same thing at times? That some of you are doing that right now? Putting other things before God? I mean, let's remember something here. This was God's second call to Abraham. He had not completely followed through with God's first call. Abraham and his family were now living in Haran. They had left Ur of the Chaldees some years before when God first called him. As a matter of fact, go back to chapter 11 real quickly here. Back in chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, it says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. May I remind you that the name Terah means delay. And boy, a delay came in the life of Abram. Settled there, I think we said, anywhere from between 5 to almost 15 years. Yes, he went out of Ur of the Chaldees, but then they settled in Haran and they didn't continue. He didn't continue. He was the one that was called. Abraham was called. And then his father died. We'll talk more about that next time. But we have to say that God's first call issued at Ur is unquestionable. There was a call to Abraham in Ur. And scripture is clear about this. I mentioned in an earlier study that Stephen, in his great sermon preached before he was stoned to death, declared that God first called Abram in Ur. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Stephen said to those that were listening to him, the, the religious leaders of the time there, in Jerusalem, he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. By the way, you know who was there also? Paul, as Saul of Tarsus. He said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's where Ur is. Before he dealt in Haran. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. Now, understand this. The Jews did not pick up stones to stone Stephen because of his history lesson. To say, you're wrong. No, why were they going to, why were they going to stone Stephen? Because he declared Jesus as the Christ. The history lesson was true. The history lesson was something that they understood. Nobody objected. They understood the callings upon Abraham's life. Because God himself reminded Abraham of the first call as well in Genesis chapter 15 verse 7. He said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur. Of the Chaldees. That was the first call to give thee this land to inherit it. Even Nehemiah, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, refers to the first call when the elders of the children of Israel that are gathered together now in Jerusalem after they've built the, built the wall and after they've taken the word of God and they've read it and they've heard the word. Now they pray before God, but one of the statements made in that prayer in verse 7 of chapter 9 of Nehemiah says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. Again, a reminder that God had given a call initially at Ur, a first call. But there is something else to consider here. To, uh, as we look at Abram's call, God doesn't tell him that he is going to give him the land at this point. Only that he will show him the land. He doesn't give him the land yet. But he says, I will show it to you. Well, that's significant. Because Abram's obedience and his discipleship, if we may call it that, 
required him to separate from his idolatrous family and worldly familiarity to walk by faith. When you think about it, we are to walk by faith, separating ourselves from the things of this world on our way to a land we've only seen in the pages of Scripture. And I'm not talking about Israel. I mean, let me give me another commercial for Israel to go there. Uh, I mean, those who have been there can tell you what a wonderfully blessed trip it is. And we go to the very site where we know that the temple will one day be built again. Where the very seat of David will be, where Jesus will reign and rule, rule and reign for a thousand years. There in the city of Jerusalem. We'll see the, 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 the stoned-in uh, gate, of uh, the eastern gate, uh, which we'll know is going to be opened up for Jesus to enter in when he comes again. But folks, that's not the Jerusalem we want to see. The promises of a new Jerusalem. The promises of another city. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through here. And see, Abram understood that. Abraham understood that. So when we think about these things, we're, walk, we're to walk by faith, separating ourselves from the world as we move toward that land that we've only seen in the pages of Scripture. Heaven in our eternal home. I mean, listen, I want to see heaven. I want you to see heaven. I don't want you to miss what God has promised to give you. But too many of us act like if this is it right here. This is it. No, it isn't. Let me emphatically state to you right now, this isn't it. There's something better. And Jesus promised it. So quit looking at it around here as if this is all there's going to be. Now, praise the Lord that what we have today, God has given to us. What we have, He has blessed us with, so that we can use to His glory, honor, and praise, and for the good of others. No problem, no problem with that. That's scriptural. But the point is, we're not settled here. This isn't our home. We'll see that in just a moment. But heaven and our eternal home there is a delight to us as we are constantly discovering it every time we get into God's Word and every time we put our faith and trust in the Lord. Because there are certain things each and every one of us needs to know right now. Turn to John chapter 14 and know this. Know this with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Know this. Jesus said in verse 1, and this he says to his disciples before he goes to the cross. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. What does that say about our friendship with God? If Abraham was a friend of God because he believed God, Jesus is telling his disciples, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Do you know that? Do you know that with all your heart, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and right now, He's waiting to come again, to receive us unto Himself, that where He is, there you and I may be also. Do you know that? Well, there it is, written right before you. Know it, and believe it. Because Jesus promised it. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where are those spiritual blessings? In heaven with Christ, who's waiting to come and join us together with Him so that we can enjoy those spiritual blessings and heavenly blessings in that heavenly place forever. Do you know that? Do you know it? You need to know this, you see, to understand Abraham. You remember that section I told you we didn't read? Let's go back and read it. Hebrews 11, verse 11. We need to read it. 
This is that long paragraph that talks about Abraham's faith. This is another section of it. It's the middle section. Probably the most important for us to understand right now. It says in verse 11, Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Sarah believed God. Wasn't as quick as Abraham when he finally believed God, but, but Sarah eventually believed God. She struggled there for a little bit. Why? Well, you know the story, right? God comes to Abraham and says to him, Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations. Abraham says, oh, thank you, Lord. Just one thing. You do know I'm 100 years old. You do know I've got a few, a, a few years on me. You do know, Lord, I'm long in the tooth. I think you know that. Oh, by the way, you do also know that my wife Sarah, you know, as beautiful as she is, I mean, she's old too. And she's really old. Not as old as me, but she's old. But one other thing, and I think you know this, Lord, I think you know the very fact that Sarah is barren. But if you know all that, I can trust what you say. He believed God. He will become a father of many nations, many people, a multitude. That's why his name Abraham is father of a multitude. So Sarah, finally, you know, after she first of all laughs when she hears, you know, that uh, she's going to give birth at her advanced age. Nonetheless, it's, it's a great story here because it says, Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead. That's speaking of Abraham. Yeah, he was old and as good as dead. But one sprang forth was Isaac. That's <laughs> a great colorful language, isn't it? You know, so he, he's as good as dead, but... But he says, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. There's a beautiful song written back in the 70s by Phil Keggy. The first line is, look at, this, look at the stars, Abraham, and believe I am. You know, that's what God's saying to us today. Look at the stars, children, and believe that I am. Look at all that I've made and created. Even after man has polluted it, there's still a beauty to the skies. There's still a beauty in the stars. There's still a beauty in knowing that out of nothing, everything came. Because I spoke it. So, trust me. Now, Paul goes on to say, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You see, this is what Abraham understood. It wasn't just what he was going to do living on this earth. It was what was to come. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. In fact, it's really seeking a city. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Abraham took his, just turned his back on Ur and Haran, and he says, Now I go forward wherever God wants me to go. And then he says in verse 16, But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As much as I want you to see the city of Jerusalem in Israel, I want you to see the city of the new Jerusalem. But to see the city of the new Jerusalem, you need to come to Jesus Christ. You need to know Jesus. You need to trust the fact that Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. No one. Not by your own methods, not on your own terms, but through me. And so Abram's departure was necessary for spiritual growth as our departure from the things of this world is for our own spiritual growth. Let me leave you with one last 
passage of Scripture, and that's Luke chapter 9, and verses 23 through 25. And these are the words of Jesus. So I want you to see that it is Jesus speaking to you and to me. And Jesus says this, He said to them all, which means He not only said it to His disciples, but He said it to us too. He said, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for My sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? In other words, what advantage is it for a man if he gains this whole world, as some people are wanting to do today, but loses his soul? We have to get our, we have to get our minds and our hearts out of the temporal and into the eternal. Listen, you can, you can gain the whole world if you want. You can try to gain the whole world if you want. But you'll only have it for a short time. Because everything in this world will perish. Everything. The Bible tells us that the Word of God will not perish because it will last forever. And so will the things that God Himself makes for His people. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells. That's the object of our sojourn in this life, to be with Christ forever. But what must we do if any man will come after me? Let him deny himself and take up his cross every day. Every day we put ourselves to death so that the life of Christ lives in us. And we follow Jesus. Where is following Jesus going to take us? Not just to a grave. It takes us to an eternal home that we've not seen yet, but we can trust is there because God says it. And because Jesus has said it. And because Abraham believed it. And Moses believed it. And Joshua believed it. And David believed it. And Daniel and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Paul and Peter. And James and John. They all believed what Jesus said about our eternal destiny. But do you believe it? That's what matters. Let's pray.